Good morning, church family. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, my name is Andrew Wild, and if this happens to be your first Sunday with us, I want to extend to you a very special welcome. Our primary teaching pastor, David Beatty, is officiating his niece's wedding this weekend, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you. And as we begin, let me just take a moment, and will you bow your heads with me, and let's just uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come before you now knowing that you're the great shepherd. Thank you for the way that you watch over us. Thank you for the way that you care for us. And Lord, I thank you that you know right now what's on the hearts and minds of each and every one of us. You know what we carried with us into this space. And I pray now that you would come and that you would still our hearts and that you would quiet our minds so that we would be able to hear from you. Lord, we would invite you to speak. Speak through your word and by your servant. And Lord, I pray that as a result of our being here and our looking into the word that you have inspired, that we would leave changed. That we would have an encounter with your grace that would cause us to leave in deeper amazement of who you are. That we would leave knowing you better and loving you more. And we ask this in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Those of you who have been with us for any length of time know that I'm going to invite you to turn with me to what book in the Bible? Let's all say it together. Romans. Yes, very good. Back in February, we began a, a church-wide study of what many would consider to be the Apostle's magnum opus. This is his longest letter uh, this is his most lengthy treatment of the key doctrines that comprise of the Christian faith. I would venture to say that this, this book has launched more people into a deeper amazement of God's grace than anything ever written. You know what uh, St. Augustine and Martin Luther and John Wesley all have in common. They all had uh, a profound, radical a life-changing encounter with God's grace as a result of their time spent in this letter. And I pray the same will be true for us as well. This Sunday, we arrive at the last chapter in this letter. And while we will bring our church-wide study of Romans to a close, are we ever going to say that we're done with Romans? Turn to your neighbor and say no. That's right. Uh, I see some of you shaking your head east-west. That's right. No. No matter how much we read a particular section of Scripture, or we study it, or we even memorize it, we're never done with it, uh, because the goal really isn't for us to master Scripture. That can't happen. The goal is for Scripture to come and to master us, to master our lives. Uh, reading the Bible isn't about gaining information. It's about transformation. And we know that the Holy Spirit, which inspired the Scripture that we're going to read, is the same Spirit that comes and brings illumination to our lives and causes God's word to, to be applied to our lives. And that's why we can keep reading, we can keep plowing over the same soil again and again, and we can uncover new gems with each pass. Now, as Paul brings the letter to a close, we see that chapter 16 will break down into, into four sections. Initially, in verses 1 to 16, Paul's going to greet those he knows in Rome. Then there's a final warning in verses 17 to 20. In verses 21 to 24, those who are with Paul in Corinth, they send their greetings to Rome. And then finally, a beautiful doxology that you just heard read. And now as we uh, prepare to make a pass at this chapter, I, 
confess I debated more than usual over which direction the message should take. With this being the last message in the series, I, I wondered about a, a summary of the entire letter. And I think that would certainly be a worthwhile use of our time, but I will leave that to your, your personal study or uh, to a small group discussion. At the beginning of the week, uh, my intent was to cover the entire chapter, but uh, as I moved along into Tuesday, I realized this is a long chapter and that would make for a long message. Uh, you're welcome. We're not going to do that. Uh, the, the wise preacher is also mindful of those who are serving in Noah's Ark and Kids Rock. Uh, it would, it would um, certainly be a worthwhile use of our time to, to focus in on the warning or the doxology. Those are incredibly relevant. But as I spent time in the chapter, I, I feel drawn to the greetings to sections one and three, and I think God has a word for us there. And I invite you to follow along as we read just the first 16 verses. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apenitus, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenia and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Perses, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, sometimes, oh, no, 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 <laughs> no, just, I, I, I do want to observe, though, when we, when we come across a list of names like that, um, I know what our temptation is, right? This is my temptation too. It's to skim over it. When, when we encounter Bible verses that have, um, you know, names like this, it's like, all right, uh, cue the speed read. I, I would venture to say that, you know, when, when people put Bible verses on their Instagram page, you're, you're never going to see one of these verses up there, are you? I mean, you, you have never seen one of these verses on, on a coffee mug, on the back of a t-shirt or any wall art, have you? No. Um, I, I think there's this tendency to say, all right, um, you know, chapters 1 to 15, that's the real meat and potatoes of Romans, and this is kind of the superfluous material, and so let's just scan it. The names are difficult to pronounce. We've never heard of these people. We know nothing about their lives. How are they relevant to us? They lived like 2,000 years ago. We're moving on. Let's just hang out in chapter 1 to 15. Well, here's what we also know, that all Scripture is God-breathed, 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And the greetings don't fall outside the bounds of what is useful for our growth in the Lord. It's just sometimes the gems are buried a little deeper, but they're there. And as we look at these greetings, I'd like to press upon you three takeaways, uh, three ways that the early church encourages us, three ways that I, I feel like uh, there, there's an example worth emulating for us. Now, I'll, I'll mention that these takeaways are for those who are already followers of Jesus, for those who are Christians. And if that's, if that's not you yet, if you're here because you're exploring the Christian faith, I would say the message is, is still relevant. Uh, you, you'll just you'll know when you do decide to become a follower of Jesus what it's all about and, and what you should be doing. And um, eavesdrop, listen in. And uh, at the very end of the message, I'll, I want to circle back and just speak to you for a moment. But for those of us who are Christians, we can't help but notice this is a theologically rich treatise. But as, as the letter comes to a close, we recognize that Paul is not living in an ivory tower. He isn't some cloistered theologian in a cave. He isn't alone in a hermitage saying, it's just me and Jesus. He's integrated in community. In those verses I just read, Paul greets 25 people by name and two that are unnamed. When he goes to um, send the greetings from those who are in Corinth with him to Rome, we see that eight different believers are mentioned by name. This, this final chapter gives us a sense for the love and the, and the connection and the community that existed among believers in the early church. And you can't help but get the sense that these relationships were important to Paul. These were more than just mere business associates. He uses language that implies that the bond is, is much stronger. He calls many of these people beloved, doesn't he? That's an affectionate term. You just don't say that to the random cashier at the grocery store, do you? No, I think you have to share life with someone at a fairly intimate level before they become so dear to you that you would call them beloved. We see there was to be such warmth and fondness among members of the church for one another that Paul would say in verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm guessing you don't do that with a stranger, do you? You just don't lean in on the bank teller on your way out and try and plant one on them, do you? Not unless you want to end up in jail. No, we, we don't do that. And uh, in the event this is your first Sunday with us, I want to make clear that we don't do that here either. Um, you can stop by the Welcome Center on your way out and, and you can be confident that no one's going to purse their lips and, and try and plant one on you. In, in fact, um, I, I want you to know that, that as a church... Um, thanks to Pastor David, we really have been on the cutting edge when it comes to personal hygiene and germ mitigation. I, I, I can say this with confidence. Those of you that have been here a while, you know that long before any of us knew what COVID was, that we had hand sanitizer dispensers stationed throughout our coffee bar. Did we not? We can thank Pastor David for that. Every, all the other churches were scrambling. We had vats of the stuff. We were ready to go. David had us ready. Some of you remember like several years ago, um, back in the good old days, when all, all we had to worry about was the flu, um, David, David guided us and um, instituted during the inter months, the, the, those winter months, we were to greet one another with the fist bump. There we go. Instead of the handshake, right? 
So we have always been on the cutting edge when it comes to hygiene. And we, we know that the holy kiss is just a symbolic gesture that varies from culture to culture. And so um, if you're on a mission trip in France, you might greet someone by kissing them on the cheek. But here at River Oaks, if, if Pastor David extends to you that elbow bump, you, you know that um, that gesture is conveying the same warmth and fondness that would have been communicated through a kiss in the ancient Near East. We also notice that Paul uses familiar language in this section. He refers to Phoebe as a sister. His life was so intertwined with Rufus's that he says his mother has been a mother to me as well. I mean, think about that for a moment. What, what would it take for you to say that about someone else's mom? There aren't many friends I have that I can say that about, but I think I can say that about my friend Daniel. His mom, Miriam, has been like a mother to me, and the reason that's the case is because Daniel and I logged a lot of life together. We were good friends in high school. We went to college together. We were roommates together at Fort Carson. We were in the same battalion. We went to Iraq together, and especially during those college years, I spent a lot of nights at the home of Daniel's parents. I was there for parts of spring break and for parts of Christmas break and for spring break. And Daniel's mom, she fed me. She cleaned up after me. Um, she didn't get mad when I puked in the backseat of her car and I got sick and ruined her comforter. She didn't get mad when I discovered that my body weight um, was not designed to be supported by her picnic table and broke it. She would, you know, wash the, guest, the sheets on the guest bed after I stay there and she would pray for me and I'm just, I'm guessing if there's anyone in your life where you could say her mom or his mom was like a mother to me, that, that, that's a family that you have some pretty close relationships with and there are a lot of shared experiences. Am I right? Uh, you've heard me say this before, but this chapter really brings this truth to life. It takes a big highlighter to it. Church is more than a, an event that we attend on Sunday mornings. It's also a community, or even better, I think, a, a spiritual family that we're a part of. Psychologists and life coaches and therapists have spilled a lot of ink in recent years trying to, to make known what the Bible has made clear for centuries, and that is that we need social connections to thrive in life. In his national bestseller, Bowling Alone, Harvard professor Robert Putnam writes this, of all the domains in which I have traced the consequences of social capital, in none is the importance of social connectedness so well established as in the case of health and well-being. Self-destruction is not merely a personal tragedy, but a sociological predictable consequence of the degree to which one is integrated into society. In recent decades, public health researchers have extended this initial insight to virtually all aspects of health, physical as well as psychological. Dozens of painstaking studies have established beyond reasonable doubt that social connectedness is one of the most powerful determinants of our well-being. He goes on to say, the more integrated we are with our community, the less likely we are to experience colds, heart attacks, strokes, cancer, depression, and premature death of all sorts. After reviewing dozens of scientific studies, sociologist James House and his colleagues have concluded that the positive contributions to health made by social integration and social support rival in strength 
the detrimental contributions of well-established biomedical risk factors like cigarette smoking, obesity, elevated blood pressure, and physical activity. This isn't um, from some Christian blog. This is you know, a Harvard professor making these observations. And, I, and I, I think the Apostle Paul would give hearty amen to this assessment, and he would go on to say that social connection in a local church is, is crucial for our spiritual well-being. It's vital. We, we need the companionship that a spiritual family offers. Brothers and sisters in the Lord who will encourage us and pray for us and sit with us and come alongside us when life puts us on the back, when we get a curveball, when we get the diagnosis that we didn't want to hear, when something happens with our parents, when something happens with one of our kids. The, the other day I came across this illustration that it might be indicative of our times. In the first caption here, we, we see an individual who feels like he's drowning. He's barely keeping his head above water. And then in the next graphic, we get a fuller picture. The guy who is, is drowning is actually seated in a bathtub. And uh, the, I think the point of the illustration is that sometimes our challenges in life could be lessened if we were engaged or we were active in a local church, if we had brothers and sisters in Christ who were locking arms with us. Now, to be clear, you can have great spiritual friendships and still struggle with things like depression. Uh, one of our high school seniors, a uh, student over at West, Jacob Hawkins, he spoke last Sunday night at youth, and he shared about his own struggles with depression. And one of the takeaways that I pocketed from Jacob's message was that you're going to struggle better if you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are involved in your life. One of our elders, Charlie Barham, I don't even know if you remember saying this, Charlie, but I, I thought this was profound. He said, uh, you might have a personal relationship with Jesus, but he never intends it to be a private relationship. Think about that. You might have a personal one, but he never intends it to be a private one. And as we think about these greetings, let me just ask a few diagnostic questions of all of us. If work were to take you out of town for an extended season and you were to pen a letter back to River Oaks, are there a few individuals that you would want to greet by name? Are, are, there, are there people that you have become so close with that it would seem natural to refer to them as a brother or sister, or as a, a beloved friend? And if not, don't be discouraged. I, I would suggest that Paul and Ampliatus didn't simply sit beside each other at church one Sunday morning and then all of a sudden, like, something magical happened poof, and their hearts were instantly bonded together. I would suggest that their friendship and all spiritual friendships are cultivated over time as a result of shared experiences. It's time plus proximity. And if church is primarily just an event on your weekly calendar and not yet also a spiritual family, I'd encourage you to stop by the resource center after the service is over. Someone will be there um, it might be Jacob Holcomb if he finishes his equipping class. He's our minister of discipleship. And uh, I know he'd love to talk with you about a group that might be a good fit or about our upcoming event, Taste of Community, that'll happen after the holidays. Or maybe you might ask about joining a ministry team. 
One of the largest churches in our state, the Summit Church, recently did a survey, and I heard their pastor say they discovered that the individuals who felt most connected in their congregation were part of a ministry team within their church. Now, if you're like, I don't know if I want the process. I want instantaneous spiritual friendships. The closest thing we have to a microwave is a short-term mission trip. I, I guarantee you that, that if you share a bathroom or toothpaste or a squatty potty with someone, you, you will be bonded to them in some way. And so if you want that accelerated option, go see Pastor Sonny, and, uh, and he'll get you signed up for an upcoming trip to Kenya. If, if Jesus rolled around with 12 disciples and the Apostle Paul was surrounded by eight brothers in Christ when he wrote this letter from Corinth to Rome, I think it's safe to assume that we'd benefit from having at least one or two other brothers and sisters in Christ to share life with us. And so takeaway number one, if you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin, write this down. The example worth emulating from the early church, live in community. Live in community. The second takeaway from these greetings is that we must welcome diversity. Welcome diversity. We don't have extensive biographies on all the individuals mentioned, but it's clear from this passage that the early church was not a monolithic community. Paul greets Prisca and Aquila, and we know from Acts 18 this was a Jewish couple. We'd also assume this is true for Andronicus and Junia and Herodon, who Paul refers to as his fellow kinsmen. Then there's a long list of Gentile Christians. So there's, there's racial diversity in the church. There's also men and women in this list. Roughly a third of the individuals named are women. The Apostle Paul is often lambasted in contemporary circles for being patriarchal or misogynistic. But this section shows us that women were active and influential in the ministry and mission of the early church. Most commentators agree that the reason Paul instructs his readers to welcome Phoebe in the Lord is because she was the one that was responsible for carrying this letter from Corinth to Rome. She was the courier. We see diversity in terms of ethnicity. Rufus and his mother were from Cyrene, most likely, in what is modern-day Libya, so they're African. We read about Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ in what continent? Asia. Then there are many who have obvious Greek or Roman names, who are obviously of, uh, of European descent. We see diversity in terms of class. The fact that Phoebe was a patron of many indicates that she was most likely a prominent woman with the wherewithal to help meet the needs of others. The same goes for Gaius in verse 23, who must have been a man of some wealth, for he hosted Paul and the church of Corinth met there in his home. Verse 23, we also see Erastus mentioned. He was the city treasurer. This would have been a prominent elected official. Interestingly, archaeologists have unearthed this large Latin inscription in Corinth that dates to the middle of the first century. And I don't know if you can see it on the top first left. The name that's on there is Erastus. And the inscription reads, Erastus, in return for his edelship, laid the pavement at his own expense. An edile was a person elected to oversee aspects of city finances, and it's probable that this is the same individual that Paul mentions in his letter. 
I think that's pretty cool. On the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, Paul says, greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus and those who belong to the family of Narcissus. And most commentators are in agreement this would have been Paul's way of extending greetings to all those believers in those households who were slaves. So we see slaves and freedmen and businesswomen and elected officials and Africans and Asians and Europeans and Jews and Gentiles and male and female in fellowship together in the early church. And that should challenge us. We can't just assume that God wants to reach people that are just like us because everyone is welcome in God's family. He's got really big arms. And uh, in our vision 2025, our elders articulated a desire to continue to grow in this area because we feel like this is something that's near and dear to the heart of God. As uh, our, our leadership looked ahead to, you know, God willing, what would our church look like in the year 2025? Uh, This is what they said, that the richness of the church's corporate worship is enhanced by the presence of worshipers from over two dozen different nations. Members and guests often note that worship services at River Oaks look like heaven because of the diversity of race, ethnicity, and age in the congregation. And praise God for the diversity that already exists. I I, I think it must excite God. I, I think it must thrill his heart to hear His word read in English and in Spanish and in Telugu and in Swahili and in American Sign Language. I mean, haven't the videos that Brett and Sam put together for the series been wonderful? I mean, they've been great. We can clap for those guys. Yeah. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Sam. And uh, I just, I I think the prayer is is that, that God would continue to give us gifts of hospitality and, and, and also gifts of boldness and evangelism through the, through the enabling of the Holy Spirit, that there would be more and more diversity, that we, we as a church would have the privilege of worshiping alongside people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So the passage shows us that we live in community and they welcome, we welcome diversity. Finally, a third takeaway. As we read these greetings, there's a common theme. There there is a reoccurring attribute that Paul keeps singling out as he goes through the greetings. Let's see if you can pick up on it. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria. Greet Prisca and Aquilo, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenia and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Common theme? Anybody pick up on it? Yeah, work. These were individuals who were servant-minded. They serve the Lord through their work. I, I like what Pastor Stephen Davey has to say about the, this group of individuals who, who are commended here in Scripture. What, why, why are they singled out for significance? Well, he, he notes that the individuals in this list aren't recognized for any special ability. They're recognized for their availability. And you know, that might be the greatest gift of all, simply being available. They, they aren't commended for any particular skill or talent. 
They aren't singled out for being dynamic Bible study leaders or gifted vocalists or really skilled communicators. They're simply acknowledged for their hard work, for their willingness to serve, just the fact that they made themselves available. We, we aren't told exactly what they did, but you can't help but wonder what someone like Persis did to merit this commendation. Was Persis the guy who, like members of our coffee bar team, I'm looking at Dean and Sue Matthews over here, who will hang around after everyone else left to help clean up and to take out the trash? What about Mary? She worked hard in the Lord. Was, was she the one that was captain of the prayer team? Or was she the one that was head of the usher team that took the time to prepare the, the bread and the wine anytime the church got together to celebrate the Lord's Supper? Or what about Urbanus? Was singled out because of his faithfulness and visiting those who were sick? Or maybe was he the one that was heading up the children's ministry? My guess is Rufus's mom, that she was part of the missionary care team, for sure. Or what about Prisca and Aquila and Gaius, these individuals who opened their home for a church to meet there in their house? Those of you who have hosted a, a small group in your house before, you know how this works. This is a bit of a commitment. You have to straighten up before everyone comes over, and uh, sometimes stuff gets broken, drinks get spilled. There's cleanup on the back end, but there's a joy in it. I'm reminded of what Jim Elliott, the, the famous missionary, said. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And uh, I'd just say, you know, if, if you have to sweep up some crumbs and you have to get the resolve and do a little, you know, splain dotting on your carpet because you have some people over in service to the Lord, like, who cares? The Lord is going to bless it. There is a blessing in that. These individuals are commended. They're, they're immortalized in Scripture just because of their willingness to serve. And you know what? The same holds true for all of us. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord, let's say this last part together, your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. And so takeaway number three, we live in community, we welcome diversity, and I would say embrace service. This is what we see of the early church. They embraced it. Yeah, you might not get to watch as much football as the next guy if you say you're going to serve at youth on Sunday evenings. You might miss out on a good Hallmark Christmas movie if you decide to lead a small group on Wednesday evenings. You might get grossed out if you serve in Noah's Ark with the little kids and you have to change a diaper. You might have to arrive at church 15, 20 minutes early if you serve on the parking team and put out the cones. Or you might have to stay late if you're on the coffee bar team and take out the trash. But don't live for your present comfort. What we see in the early church is they live for a future reward. They live for the Savior's kingdom. And it, it will be far better to be known as a modern-day Persis than to be known as the guy who went all in on Panthers football. Go all in on Jesus and service to him. We, we, we don't know much about many of the individuals on this list, but there are a few names that show up elsewhere in Scripture 
And one of the individuals who is mentioned elsewhere is Rufus. His name shows up in Mark's gospel. In, in Mark 15, we have the, the account of Jesus' crucifixion. And we know that um, there, uh, before he was led to Golgotha, that he was mocked, he was whipped, he was scourged. And then as they led him outside the city gates, he would have been expected to carry the cross on his back. But his body was physically broken at that point. And we're told in verse 21 of Mark's gospel that they compelled, that they being the Roman soldiers, compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. That name Rufus again. And it would seem that really odd that Mark would mention this as a parenthetical comment if he didn't expect his readers to know who Rufus and Alexander was. And we know that, you know, Matthew wrote to the Jews and Luke wrote to the Gentiles. Mark's gospel was written from Rome to the Romans. And so it seems really likely that Mark and the Apostle Paul are referring to the same individual when they talk about Rufus. So Rufus's dad, Simon, is the one who carries the cross for Jesus. And now we're told this happened because he was the passerby that got singled out. And you can't help but wonder what must have gone through Simon's mind in that moment when he was compelled to carry the cross. I think it's safe to assume that this wasn't exactly glamorous service, was it? I'm sure it was physically demanding. I'm sure it was a little humiliating. Can't help but wonder, did he feel like it was beneath him as he's paraded through the streets with Jesus' cross on his back? Maybe he thought, why me? Why not him or her? But what happens as a result of this service? There's a blessing in it, isn't there? We know that, that Simon has an encounter with Jesus Christ and his grace. And that encounter spills over to his wife, into his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And Rufus is now uh, someone that's part of the, the church in Rome. And see, it seems like uh, the blessing of serving Jesus turns out to be multi-generational. And so I just, parents, I would challenge you, think about that. What, what, what are you modeling for your children as it relates to service to our Savior? I know that in times of uncertainty, it's our tendency as human beings to sort of circle the wagons and look internal, right? And for the past year and a half, have we had some uncertainty? Absolutely. And I just, I just say that as the Lord gives you a peace about returning to restaurants and to sporting events and to traveling, just, just consider the example of the early church and emulate it. Because there wasn't anything special about these individuals. There wasn't anything extraordinary. These were ordinary people. And God used the early church to transform the world. It wasn't their ability. It was their availability. The fact that they were just willing to roll up their sleeves and to work and to be of service, to love their Savior and to love one another by doing tangible acts of ministry. And as this, this beautiful letter that's chock full of such you know, doctrinal 
teaching enough to keep even the brightest theologian occupied for his entire life. I just, I think it's fitting that the letter comes to a close with this emphasis on community, on love for one another, and a reminder that the, the humble servants of the Lord perform all types of active ministry. And, and at times, this might seem hard. It might seem difficult. And as the doxology comes to a close, you know what it says? It says, now to him who is able to strengthen you, or now to him who is able to establish you. Now to the one who is able to, to cause you to stand before the presence of the Lord. We're reminded that him who began a good work in us is the one who's going to bring it to completion. That he, the one who justifies us, is the one who will also sanctify us and glorify us. He's the one who enables us to do this service, to welcome diversity, to live in community. And I would say if you um, are here and you're not yet a believer, that's wonderful. You just want to jump right in and, 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 and become part of the community. But there's something that comes first. Before we can have brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to be in Christ ourselves. And the way that works is we're, we're told in John's gospel that to all who believe in Jesus, to those who call on his name, he gives the right to become children of God. So the way that we become part of God's family, the way we become part of his family, is through our belief in his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you've never placed your faith in him before, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. Uh, will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, I want to thank you so much for your faithfulness. And I want to thank you for your patience. I just, uh, I think I speak on behalf of all of us. When I recognize that as we spend time in your word, uh, that, that there's areas where your truth comes and it puts a finger on areas where we know that we have not pleased you and lived for you as we ought. And we know that we're missing out on your best. And I pray that as a result of hearing your word, that we would not simply walk away and forget it in those areas where you would want us to change where you would want uh, to move us in the direction of your goodness, that you would give us the strength to walk in your ways. And God, I think of the person here who maybe is not yet a part of your family. And if that's you, and if you, if you know that, that God has been speaking to you this morning through his word and by his spirit, I want to give you the opportunity to, to respond to that knock at your heart. And you can do it just by saying a prayer like this. You could say, God, I thank you so much for your great love. And I realize I don't deserve it. I, I recognize that I am one who is separated from you because of my sin. But I thank you that you would send Jesus to be my Savior. And I thank you that because of his death in my place, that eternal life is something I don't need to try and achieve for myself. It's something that I can receive by grace through faith. And I place my faith in you now. And I want to live for you all of my days.
And all God's people said, Amen.